Welcome everyone, very glad you could join me, business psychologist Michael Costello, to explore the most significant change in the workplace for over a generation, and that is, of course, hybrid working. This new era offers so many opportunities for a more productive, engaging, sustainable and enriching workplace. So, as always at Management Today, we've bagged the very best guest to guide us on these opportunities, and there is no greater source than the incredible Linda Gratton. Linda is the global thought leader on the future of work, professor of management practice at London Business School, founder of the Future of Work Research Consortium, co-chair of the World Economic Forum Council, and named by many as one of the top business thinkers in the workplace. We explored Linda's hybrid working framework from her new book, Redesigning Work, to help us ensure employee productivity inclusivity, collaboration and equality in the hybrid era. We also achieved an insight into what other organisations like Arup and BP are doing to become a little more flexible in the hybrid era. Listen in though to the section on Artemis who have tapped into a talent pool worth billions all down to greater flexibility on time and place of work. Welcome to the new era of hybrid working. Exciting times ahead Thanks to Linda for all of her advice. I found her inspirational, insightful, passionate and a huge force for good. And I hope you do too. Linda and I start off our discussion on her hopes for the book and how it came about. So let's crack on and enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you. First of all, Michael, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a big fan of management today and you're almost as old as I am. I can't believe it. 1967, you started. Yeah, yeah I was I was a baby in arms at that time. Like, but nevertheless, uh, great to be part of this wonderful community. Well, to be honest, I wasn't really going to write another book over that summer of the pandemic. I'd just written, Andrew Scott and I had written The Hundred Year Life. We'd written The New Long Life. We were sort of sitting back thinking, this is going to be great. We can just relax. You know, academics don't do anything. So it will be amazing time. And then the pandemic came along and I actually pretty early on, I've kept a diary. Uh, I'm now on to volume 13. In fact, I just started volume 13 this morning. So I, I sort of really kept an eye on it from the very beginning. I uh, have a column at MIT, which I was changing ideas, exchanging ideas. I've got, um, you know, web. I did webinars and I just realized, Michael, this is a chance where we could actually do all the things I've always wanted companies to do for years and years, but I've never been able to really push them over their side. So here we are, we're pushing it over the side. So this is really a book about pushing companies over the side. And that's why I wrote it. So I devoted a huge part of uh, last year um, because I, I'm so, it, I think it's such an important topic. And But the people who've seen it say, wow, this is an important book. So that's, you know, to be an author. And have somebody say, I think this could be an, an important book is a very good feeling. We need to change the way we work if we want women to get involved, if we want our communities to strengthen, if we want to be more innovative. There's so many good reasons why we have to change work. And the pandemic, with its new skills, new networks, new ways of thinking about work, has really pushed us. So the book is just a little push over the edge. If we got a, a sneak peek at your diary, Linda... Like what, what sort of things would would we see in it as, you, as you've been going through the, the pandemic? Can you give us any of the gossip that, that's perhaps not in the Goss. book? Oh, loads of gossip. Well, this morning I was 
And I'll start with Japan. Um, I often start with Japan because of the time difference. You know, they're the oldest living uh, people in the world. They live over 100. So they, they love the 100-year life. I became a bit of an icon. I even became a cartoon character, actually, in a manga. Sat on the <laughs> President Arbe's um, <laughs> council. And they were really talking about, well, how do we push this forward? So I've been very involved in Japan. I, I sit, as you perhaps know, as I chair the World Economic Forum Council on Skills and Jobs. So, um, yeah. And then, of course, I teach my wonderful, wonderful students at London Business School about the future of work. And I have my own consulting practice, HSM Advisory. So I'm a busy little bee. Yeah, it certainly sounds incredible achievements turning into a cartoon character. That's that's a new one, I think, for, for a guest. As a psychologist, you will know then, Linda, that for many years we've known about the value of well-being, employee well-being, the importance of managing by outcomes, not presenteeism, the importance of leading an inclusive workforce that flexes to individual needs. Has COVID then kick-started this industrial revolution that can enable us to address these sorts of issues and with the help of hybrid work? Well, you know, I think the answer is both yes and no, Michael. I mean, there's some amazingly positive uh, possibilities. You know, one would be that we've always known that the three-stage life, full-time education, full-time work, full-time retirement, didn't really fit and it wasn't really future-proofed. It didn't really help people prepare for the future. So, I've known for some time that a multi-stage life is more important, but a multi-stage life is fundamentally about you having as a worker flexibility and you taking as a worker autonomy. It's about having autonomy about when you work, where you work, how you work, what you do. And those things were really not moving very much. And so I think the great news is that the, that because the pandemic changed everything and it went on for so long that any of the habits that we had are now eroded and the skills that we are developing are now really high skills, particularly our digital skills, then there's a lot of momentum for change. Having said that, you know, there's also some rather bleak data coming out. You perhaps know that, you know, women with children are not necessarily, with young kids are not necessarily coming back to the workforce. They don't feel as if they're being included. Uh, We're finding that Older workers whom we hoped would be, we'd hoped that this era would be an era of productive 60 and 70 year olds. That's turning out not to be the case. So I think it's really important, Michael, that we continue, you know, to, to push for these better ways of working, these more humane work, ways of working, because I don't think that the pandemic on its own is going to result in that. It has, as always, positive consequences, but also a rather dark side of unintended consequences. When you're speaking to you know, a lot of these really global organisations that are in the book, is there that mood around as an opportunity for a cultural shift? Well, I think it depends really on the company. You know, one of the analogies that I use in the book um, is the idea of that, the, you know, that the Ford, the T Ford, you know, in after the Industrial Revolution, if you wanted to buy a car, you were absolutely thrilled to buy a T Ford. It was a Ford. It was had one model and it had one color and anyone who had could afford a car was thrilled to have it. They had a car. And then over time, as people wanted more variety in terms of the people who were buying cars. And as manufacturers became more adept at modularity, you got this enormous variety. And honestly, that's what I see now, Michael. What I see is that 
there's a lot of variety. And I like that because I think what it does is it gives you uh, as a worker, as a potential employee, a, a wider universe of choice. So for example, if you want to work with one of the big investment uh, uh, banks and earn quite a lot of money and really boost your reputation, but work in an office most of the time, that's available to you. I'm not making any judgments about whether that's a good or a bad thing, that's an available. If you want to work for another company where you might not be paid so much, but they're going to give you more flexibility, that's available to you. So I think the more choice that we have, the better it is for people to navigate their careers. Because the truth is that what you want at one stage of your career is not the same as what you want at another stage of your career. So I'm, I'm very pleased about this huge variety that we're seeing emerging. And one of the jobs that I feel I have, Michael, as an academic and also as a as a leader of a, a consulting practice is to describe what those are. So I've been very, in many of my webinars and in my, uh, my columns, I talk about what these companies are doing because pretty much every week, somebody else says, okay, we're gonna have the four day week or we're going to give everybody a sabbatical or I mean, whatever it is. And I think it's important that we sort of describe that universe of variety. So that's one of the things I'm doing right now. It does feel a bit T40 at the moment, actually, Linda. Have we really got choice? Because at the moment, as I see it, there is a very clear, understandable narrative on hybrid working. It's three days in the office, two days at home for many of us not not all let me be clear on that because before anybody listening kicks off but you know three days in the office two two days at home is this really hybrid working from your point of view and and is this three and two model built to last I, I I don't really know the answer to that Michael my guess is we're all learning and you know so I've suggested my advice to organizations is to experiment. I think the easiest thing has been to say, let's just say they've got people have got to be in the office some days and at home. That's actually turning out to be quite tricky, as you know. So what we're now getting is what you might almost call the next phase of design, which is a higher level of intentionality. And, and what I do in the book is I say, look, one of the questions you might want to ask is, what is the work that requires you to be at home where you can focus and what is the work that requires you to be in the office when you can cooperate with others and so if you're making the office a place of cooperation how might you redesign it so it's really about intentionality and my guess is that you know the three two is simply a um a phase it's a developmental phase because many companies don't have yet the capacity for that level of intentionality, but they are beginning to develop it. So, you know, some companies are looking at their jobs, every single job, and, and we're actually supporting some to do that and saying what's, where and when, and how could this task be best performed? And those are sort of questions that I think are going to be really important. And then you might find that there's some people who need to be in the office all the time, some people who don't need to be there at all. And indeed, some people who could um, have compressed hours or work over the weekends. You know, place has been the, the primary focus of attention. But as I've said in the book, wouldn't it be great if we also thought about time? Let me just say one other thing, Michael, before we, we go on, which is what else is happening in the labor market? Well, I could never have predicted, and I'm not sure that anyone did, a war for talent. Who would have thought that coming out of the pandemic, when we thought that we'd have high unemployment rates, that actually we'd have a war for talent? But that's exactly what we've got. I was talking to some colleagues in the US last week and saying, 
um, you know, what's on your mind right now? And they were saying it's a war for talent, whether you're, it's, um, it's delivery people, whether it's people in factories. So what's happening with the war for talent? Well, we know that some people are saying, I don't want this job that you're giving me. I, I don't want it. Um, and, you know, demographics have changed. Lots of camp, lots of people now are in two, they have two sources of income, which I don't think organizations quite understood that there's not just them. They're not just thinking about their own job. They're also thinking about their partner. Um, they're beginning to realize if they've read the hundred year life that they could live to a hundred, which means they have to be productively employed into their 80s. So I think the combination of all of these is really putting a massive amount of energy into the labor market, energy for change. And again, I've written about that. I've tried to accentuate it to CEOs. So they go, oh my goodness, you know, I have to change. It's not just the T Ford. We can, it's not just, we can make different types of T Ford. It's also that the buyers are becoming much more clear about what they want. There's been a huge power shift to the employee. There's been the great resignation. I think it was something like 20 million people retired in the US yeah. last November. That's a huge shift. So there's this, this pressure driving this, what you describe as a high level of intentionality. Yeah. Uh, and we're starting to see businesses, early adopters play with time, which we'll talk yeah. about, play with the place, the, the office. Uh, but you've it, it, at the start of the book, you encourage businesses to firstly understand what drives productivity in yeah. roles, uh, to understand the extent to which we can flex place and time. Paint us a picture on what those productivity drivers actually are. Well, thank you for that. And I, I sort of stood back um, and decided that what I was seeing could be described as a sort of process cycle, which says that you know, companies need to do four things. They need to find out where they are now in terms of what, what really drives productivity and what, um, what do people really care about around here? So you're looking at jobs and you're looking at people. They then need to be really imaginative. And I think that's, many companies are now in that imagination phase. You know, imagine if everyone could work from somewhere else, you know, for three months a year or imagine. They then need to find a process to decide whether that's going to be fair, a big issue, by the way, unjust, and whether it will help them to, you know, really absorb the technology that we're seeing coming along the way. And then they've got to get people bought into it. And those people are leaders, managers, and the employees themselves. Now, it's not that each company goes through every single one of those four stages in a sequence. But actually, what I notice that if they don't, they sort of have to cycle back. So for example, if you've developed, imagined a new way of working, and then you're saying, well, hang on, that's not really helping because actually the work that we have requires a different place. So let me just say very briefly about what we mean by productivity. What I mean by productivity is really just four elements. This is at the simplest level. One is 
does the way that you work help you to be highly energetic? Because quite a lot of the things that people do at work requires high levels of energy. The second is, some of us have jobs where focus is really important. My job is fundamentally as a writer, a focus job. I need to have four hours when I'm not disturbed, when my boundaries are managed. Uh, I can do that in the office. I could do that at home. The second is about coordination. And I mean, actually, if you look at modern organizations, Michael, a lot of the tasks are coordination tasks. And by the way, that's really become a real problem because we're using far too many meetings to coordinate. And that's part of the reason people are so burnt out right now. And then the third, the fourth is cooperation, which is to say, what is it that you're doing that if you spend time with other people in a highly cooperative way, either face-to-face -face, as you and I are doing now virtually, or indeed face-to-face -face in, in person, would, would, that, would that task be done better in that way? So for example, I'm designing a new way of thinking about how you train managers with a couple of members of my team. I know that it would be great for us to get face to face with a whiteboard and to do that. Now, we can also do it face to face on Zoom, use it or Microsoft Teams using all of the collaborative technology we've got, but we need to be synchronized. And so when I say intentionality, Michael, that's really what I'm talking about. I'm saying you need to know what it is people have to do to be productive and then you design work around that ah, okay i thought that when we were talking about high level intentionality i thought it was more about i was thinking about hr i was thinking about the contracts and how, how proactive they are and flexing time and that actually you're taking us to uh, the managers as well and we'll, we'll certainly come on to the managers and this kind of this the shift in the role of the manager that's got to oh, yeah. us, but to enhance this hybrid workplace so we'll come on to that and of course in your book uh, the new long life you know explains from your research that the majority of us will be working and hopefully living uh, for much longer as life expectancy increases you mentioned energy there we're going to need this energy yeah aren't we? A, a, a lot a lot more i mean actually back to you linda since hybrid working, have you had like an energy boost or have you been in the other camp where it's just back to back Zoom meetings? Well, to be honest, Michael, it's both, isn't it? You know, I mean, it has been back to back Zoom and I have tried to stop that. And I think all of us are. All of us, you know, I'm sometimes like a little puppy dog with a very waggy, waggy tail. And, you know, I was very excited about going to all these Zoom meetings. And then <laughs> in the end, I said, oh, my God, this is terrible. And I talked to friends from different companies, particularly Microsoft and TCS, and they said, look, we've been monitoring where people are and we can tell you the number of meetings has gone up. And when we look at the meetings, we ask ourselves, why on earth are you having a meeting to do that? You could have sent a, you, you know, you could have used Slack channel. You didn't even need to talk about it. So I think we've become, as individuals, much more in, intentional about how much time we're prepared to give to what you and I are doing now, which is synchronous, virtual synchronous. We're much more intentional, by the way, about how much time we're prepared to give to um, synchronous face-to-face. -face. Um, so I think we are beginning to carve out times to be energetic. And you and I, just before we started, you've been on, on a spin class. I actually didn't do a, I didn't do my unboxing because I, I did the thing to Japan. But, you know, yes, we both we've both become probably more healthy. Lots of people became less healthy. And I think there's going to be a push now to say, we have to have healthy work. I, I had never really thought about work 
as a place where you could be healthy. But I'm now increasingly of the view that if I were now young and, and I had to choose a place to work, one of the questions I would ask is, will this place make me, will working here help me to be, become more healthy? Because mm. if the answer is no, then you're really depleting a really important intangible asset, which is your energy. Yeah, energy and mood. I mean, a, a huge <laughs> shout yeah. out to to an old colleague, Steve Stein, who invented yes. the bar and EQI model. I don't know if you remember him, but yes, I do. That, that model, the, the foundation being mood, and yeah. you know, health and, and well-being is, is going to drive that. Prior to the, the pandemic, yeah. were you still emailing someone that was, well, I was, uh, emailing someone that was like two metres across the room. We were still making poor choices about <laughs> communication media. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that we we can do to get a little bit better at those choices? Because it's going to be pretty critical. It can't be underestimated. What do you have a top tip? Well, first of all, Michael, can I just say you you are so right. So there's been some amazing research done on people in offices before the pandemic. Because as we look back, we said, oh, we loved offices. We spent all our time drinking coffee, talking to people. No. <laughs> the research shows what happened is you went into an open plan office, which we all hate. You put your headphones on because it was so noisy and you worked on your computer. And that's what working in an office was. And I think we've got to rem remember that. Because honestly, if that's what working as an office is, you can do that at home. You don't have to commute an hour to do that. So then you have to say, well, why would we be together? Now, it could be that it's actually fine for you to work like that because you're going to have lunch together or in the afternoon you're going to do something else. But there has to be, if you're going to go into the office, there has to be a reason which is about other human beings you know either you've got a one-to-one -one or you're in a group or you're having lunch or having coffee whatever it is if it's just an isolated event then you don't need to commute and you know for some people that's a big deal getting up early in the morning getting into the London at eight o'clock at nine o'clock that's for some people that was a five o'clock start um that was tough yeah it's it's a rapid rapid thing that's going to drain your energy quite quickly yeah. You turn up to that office and then you ask yourself, well, why, why am I here? You start yeah. to question your line manager's uh, way of doing things as, as well. And that can be yeah. a, a, an easy way to, to break in some of the trust. Come back to your time when you worked with BT. I quite like the story. I don't know who it was, but the, the senior leader that decided to have their office slap bang in the middle of... Uh, that, the, yeah, the that floor. was... How that was that John Brown out for for it. Oh, that was John Brown at BP. Yeah, that was a long time ago, actually. But I just I love it. I think it's a great story. So I had been asked. I was writing a case with about BP about the way that John Brown had managed to bring the organisation together in this very complex way, a very interesting way. So I'd been I'd, I had asked to go and see him, and he, you know, I got to the reception at BP House, and they said he's on the sixth floor or eighth floor. You'll see him in the middle of the room, and he was indeed in the middle of the room in an open plan. Having said that, he had surrounded himself by both uh, Colombian uh, statues, which is what he collects, and greenery. So he was sort of in the middle, but certainly not. But I said, hats off to you, John, because what he was trying to do was to break down the barriers. I mean, he was trying to show 
that he wanted to be part of, of everybody else. He didn't want to be in his you know, corner office where he didn't see others. So, you know, he was trying to do that. Now, of course, he didn't really want to sit in the middle of an office, not as much as anyone would. So that's why he built the barricade around him. But his intention was the right thing. And I think, you know, honestly, Michael, right now, I'm, I'm being very positive about organizations intentionality. I think most CEOs and most leaders are trying to do the best they can. You know, they're trying, if it's an investment bank and you've said, I want everybody back in the office five or six days a week, that's because you honestly believe that's the best way for work to get done in your company. Who am I to tell you that that's wrong? I mean, what I can say is, you know, there'll be a whole bunch of people who are highly talented that won't join you and you're going to lose people, but they might rightly say, well, fine. I mean, that, you know, I don't, there's, a, there's billions of people who want to join these, or hundreds, millions who want to join these investment banks. That's fine. So I'm generally pretty um, positive about almost all experiments. What I do say to CEOs, though, is are you sure that what you're doing is going to help your people be more productive, more engaged, and importantly, that attracts them in this period of the war for talent and retains them. And if they can say yes to those questions, I'll say, great, get on with it. I'm interested in that BP House story is the fact that that in itself is a choice of medium of communication, that accessibility, yeah. that visibility, that that face to face. It's an important choice to make. I do find from some delegates or leaders that, that I work with, actually, that you can become too visible. And that, and that phrase, yes. you know, my door's always open. Yeah. I, I challenge on that because actually, why not try and control the parameters of which you're accessible? Yeah. So it, that sort of choice, like what, what's your experience of talking to leaders about that, that choice in particular? Well, I think the question of boundary management is really important. I think it always was important, but very early on, it came out to be more important. And the boundaries were both physical and virtual boundaries. One is the physical boundary. You know, you're working from home and your kids are walking in. Do you remember that amazing BBC guy at the very beginning where his kids were sc scooted in? Well, we, the reason why that's so amazing is honestly, if we saw it now, if your child scooted in now or one of my grandchildren, we, you and I wouldn't say a single one. I was talking to a CEO last week and I had to say to him, can you take the cat off the desk? No, honestly, I'm sick of seeing that cat. Can I just talk to you? And oh, hello. So look, you know, um, we've moved a long way. So there was, there was boundaries at home and there was also our virtual boundaries. The fact that people felt they could connect to each other all the time on Zoom because it's so easy. So those boundaries have got to be managed. And I think one of the, the areas going forward, again, about intentionality is to say, how do you manage those boundaries? And how do you give yourself, particularly if your job is a job that requires focus, how do you give yourself time, uninterrupted time, you know, as a psychologist, I know that if I'm writing and I, I just glance at my email, my brain doesn't go back to where it was. And, and if you think, you know, people say, no, no, I'm great at multitasking. No, you're not. None of us are. Um, you can only multitask if the job is very simple and the task is very simple. But actually, we just really need to give ourselves a focus. So, you know, we do need to manage boundaries. And those are the bound, those are physical boundaries. 
particularly at home, how do I stop people from you know, wandering in all the time? Their virtual boundaries, how do I stop people from filling my, uh, you know, my schedule up with all these wretched Zoom meetings? Yeah. Um, and also their sort of cognitive boundaries, which is to say, how do I give myself permission to, to relax, you know, to, to do all the things I know, because I'm a writer, that it requires a very rested brain for me to write. I, I came back from Egypt at the beginning of last week and I was for all sorts of reasons, very tired. And, and as much as I had, I had to write, I had a timeline to write, I actually couldn't write. I, I just could not do it. I could not give, my brain just wasn't working. And I think we have to acknowledge that humans, the thing that differentiates humans and, and robots is that we are very contextually dependent. So, you know, if I'm in a place where I feel unhappy or annoyed or I'm interrupted all the time, I can't do that amazing stuff that helps me to be, you know, a very high functioning human. Yeah, yeah. And the book goes into good detail. But again, that, that productivity driver of travel and, and what an energy depleter that actually is. And yeah. good line managers will, will recognize that as, as well. Just for the record, my wife can multitask. I just want to say that, Lindy, um, just in case I get in trouble and, and she is listening. Um, but let's move on. I'm not making any, you can see I've got the sun in my eyes. So the sun has come out in my eyes when you told me about that. Oh, no, well, there's a sign. I'm not, making any, I'm not making any comment at all. It's a sign any, any gendered comment, Michael. When you look back over the last couple of years, yeah. do you feel like there are certain talent pools, demographics that uh, have had greater gains from working from home when you think about place? And also, do you think that there are others that have uh, you know, had it more, more difficult during the pandemic? Well, I think, you know, our great hope was that that flexibility would be good for parents, be they mothers or fathers, and that the capacity to avoid the, the commute, to spend a bit more time at home uh, would help them. And I think it might and it will, but for, for parents with young children, and it's often the mums who look after young kids, it doesn't of course have to be, and some dads are brilliant, but it's often the mum who looks after young children. It's actually been more difficult because in the past, she would have left the house to go to work and actually created the boundary between home and work by doing so. Now she's having to work at home with being interrupted by children. And that's why we're seeing, sadly, um, fewer women with young kids coming back to, to work. And so I think we've got to ensure that women feel that they've got a, a chance to work. The, the reason I say that, Michael, and I'm you know, now in my... Uh, I'm now I'm now 67 years old, and so I can look back over my career, and I do think for anybody, being able to work as an adult is incredibly important. And and we know that when women take four or five or six years out, it's really difficult for them to come back. So I think that if we can provide means for parents to stay connected, you know, through different types of working, then it means that when their children 
but don't require their attention so much, they can jump back into the workforce. Remember, if you think that, um, if you think about the old ways of working, you you were going to you had a couple you you had your children when you were quite young. You had maybe three, possibly four, and then you retired at sixty. That didn't really give you very much time. But if you think for most people, a they're having their kids much later. They're having them in their thirties. B they're having fewer of them. They're having two or three, and C they've then got this huge period ahead of them. You know, I talk to forty-year-old women who say, mums who say to me oh, you know, is it worth getting back? And I said, of course it is. Yeah. You've got another 30 years ahead of you. Get on with it. Well, if women are having children later on in life, let's say it's early 40s, do you think... No, late, late 30s, late 30s. Or, or late 30s. Not late. If, if they are progressing in their career, in, in their yeah. 30s, that issue and that challenge of housekeeping, does that essentially become a more lively discussion uh, yeah. between, you know, let's just say it's a male and a female partnership yeah. here. Yeah. Um, because we keep hearing this phrase that we are, you know, the, the male being the main breadwinner, which we're all a bit kind of tired, tired of now. But, yeah. but actually, does it give women in the workplace a bit, you know, a bit more leverage if they've got a you know, great start in their 30s? to have yeah. that conversation about housekeeping because it just keeps coming up. Oh, I know. Well, I mean, yeah, it's one of these things, uh, Michael, where I have to say, don't get me started. So I'm, I'm going to summarise as easily and quickly as I can. Um, so I if I were to write a book for women, or if it would actually be a big, I wouldn't write Lean In. It would be a book for men and it would be called Step Up. And basically what it would say is, take responsibility for the home, just like women do. So what we found during the pandemic, when everyone got at home, went home, I, I very, you know, positively wrote an article in MIT and said, isn't this wonderful? This will be the opportunity for men and women or men, whatever combination to sit down and more equitably decide who does what. Because what happens is that the men, the, <laughs> the men, the women do the stuff that they have to keep thinking about. So for example, is, is are our kids having healthy food? Um, should I be worried about Johnny because his, his feet aren't growing at the moment? Maybe he needs to. to um, I, do I need to speak about Jane to the to the to, to the because I'm slightly worried that her she's a bit slow with her some of her reading. Whereas the guy says, "I'll take the rubbish out, darling." Yep. Well, you know, honestly, that it doesn't need any cognitive intensity or planning, and that's actually what happens is that men do the the stuff that's that they can do and then finish doing. I'll take the, I'll take. Whereas women do the cognitive stuff. What was really disappointing, Michael, during the lockdown is that men didn't step, step up. And, and this is going to make you feel very odd about it all, that more the, the more the difference between a man, man and a woman in terms of who owns what, the more domestic labor the woman does. Not in the way you think. I can see you're looking surprised at this stage. What the data show is that the more a woman works, the more domestic uh, work she does. The higher, the more she earns more. So the higher the, the difference between her wage and her husband's wage, the more domestic. And we've been, you know, obviously people have tried to understand what's going on here. And it's sort of a compensation thing to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm earning more than you. And by the way, this is very much the norm these days. Lots, you know, 30% of Families, the woman, the, if a woman's working, she's going to be earning more. So she is sort of compensating for the man's ego. So 
that's all got to stop. And we're hoping that this new generation of men that we're bringing up, Michael, you and I, are going to be different from that. Yeah, well, I look forward to the book stepping up. Sounds good. To, sounds good to me. I think you know that again. The book talks about some of those some of those tensions and also role spillover, which is a yeah. a, a phrase that you know really stuck with me. This this notion of you know being pulled from family life to work life yeah. and the yeah. tensions that come with like that, like like that. And it's almost a bit like what you're saying with your let's say you're reading a book. You're deeply trying to focus on this book and you're just pulled away from it with a family task and you try and come back to it. It's that tension, but exactly even more so if you're dealing with whatever parents' evenings, doctor's appointments and things like that. So hybrid working, hopefully a window to have those uh, important conversations uh, within the family as, as well. What are the exercises that you actually recommended to the businesses, actually? If we, if we run with some of the... Um, you're thinking about the demographics and, and generations. You asked the reader to think carefully about what engages, I think, in, is it enrages? Um, 25-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 65-year-olds, and also what the impact of working from home will be on the different generations, because we, we can't make an assumption. Plus, yeah. we can't be biased. That was very, very clear. Yeah. What, what trends did you pick up on and what do you think the listeners should should know about with those different generations well I think that you know the first thing is that people are different there's a lot of variety within each generation so all 25 year olds are not the same just as all 65 or 67 year olds are not the same having said that there are I think it's less to do with age and more to do with life cycle actually Michael so you know if you're if you're a parent with young children, then your needs and aspirations and hopes are different than somebody like me, where I don't have any kids to look after anymore, or somebody who's, who doesn't have any children you know, as well. So I think we, we have to really think about the, the stage that somebody's in in their life and what they want, but also their learning stage. You know, One of the things I realized quite early on is that when people are young and they go, to, go first to, to a company, they, they learn through observation. I, I told the story actually of uh, a, a lawyer that I know quite well. In fact, it turns out to be my husband, but I didn't say that in the book. And when I first, you know, I, when I saw him in the office, he was sitting in a great big desk and he had small desks at the side of the office with people sitting them. And I said, well, what are those people doing? He said, well, they're young lawyers and they're sitting with me for three months. And I said, well, what are they doing? They said, well, they're just, they're just listening. Now they had their own work as well, but they were basically listening to how he was dealing with clients. And, and I said, well, do they come with you when you, he said, oh yeah, 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 they come along. Um, and so they were, they were, you know, that tacit knowledge, which is so important for humans and so difficult to, uh, to, to tell others about because it is tacit, it's not explicit. You, it, often that's to do with observation. It's it's to it's watching other people. I, I let me give you another example of that. I have um, I have a great friend of mine who's um, an American, and she's uh, she had a dinner last week for a bunch of American friends, uh, friends of hers who were all also American women. And I watched them, and I was very much part of that of that dinner. But one thing that really struck me was that. I haven't 
you know, been, I haven't, maybe I've been too busy, but I haven't established those sorts of networks that she had established. Now, I could have written that, I could have read that in a book, you know, it's really important that you, but actually to see it, to observe it. So, you know, I think these observational processes are really important. Now, of course, you spend a lot of time at work when you don't learn anything at all. So what we have to do is to say, what are the moments when we think that observational learning is going to be really important and how therefore do we make more of them? How, do we, how, how are we sure, for example, that when a young person comes into the office, all of their senior people aren't working from home that day because they're not gonna learn anything. So that's really, Michael, what I was talking about intentionality and scheduling. This is why you're seeing a lot of, one of the things I do is I follow tech developments and there's a lot of technology at the moment about scheduling hybrid work and that's going to help enormously. So it will say to you, you know, if you want to come in and observe your leader, they're in on these days or, you know, whatever. So that's the level of intentionality with regard to scheduling that we'll need. But also the question is, what do you, what do you want to learn from your leader? You know, and how are you, how can you best learn those things? You've got needs and aspirations to consider there for young workers, new starters in, in particular. Yeah. Was there a theme that came through those that were nearing a retirement? Because it can be actually very easy to make assumptions uh, about particular generations in the workplace, almost yeah. a bias to, to creep in. Yeah, well, as I said, it's very disappointing that one group have really suffered during hybrid work, and that is older workers. And older workers have, in terms of the resignation, the great resignation, one group is older workers. They haven't come back to work. And I'm very disappointed by that. I think that organizations have to take responsibility for that. They haven't created an inclusive environment where people feel, okay, I have a role to play. And you know, Michael, that's really important because we as a society are aging. We have more people over the age of 50. And unless we want to give a huge amount of our tax to support people, over 60 who aren't working, we have to encourage them to work. It's just as simple as that. So I do think that uh, companies have to do a lot more than they are. And I've, I've joined uh, an inst a, a group founded by Andy Briggs, who's the CEO of Phoenix, which is specifically looking at older workers. And he's brought together a, a really interesting advisory group. And he's one of the CEOs absolutely committed to saying, I want older workers in the, in, to, to have a feeling that they're included. You know, I've always said as a woman and an, as an older person that um, the uh, that women, the older people are much more excluded than women. I know, now I know others may disagree with me on that, but I do think ageism is a huge problem uh, in many companies. Again, it's, it's uh, an untapped talent pool. Yeah. Many organizations can, can draw upon. Uh, makes sense to me. When we've been working from home, if, we, if we've been working from home, we've yeah. got these incredibly strong connections with our immediate team, which is really important. If you look at research from the likes of Gallup, talking about the importance of friendships, belonging, connection for productivity, but also career progression. But yeah. 
you talked about actually it's really important to kind of expand the weak ties in, in your network. What, why is that so important to keep talent? Well, in, in a number of my books, um, Michael, in fact, when I teach at London Business School, I teach classes on network theory. And I, I've always felt that UK managers haven't really understood enough about network theory and they haven't really grasped it as part of a driver for productivity. Um, so, so here's what happened during the pandemic, as you rightly said, our, our, our strong ties, i.e. with people we already knew, we were familiar with, we trusted, those strengthened, whilst our weak ties with people we don't know so much, the people, you know, if I was at London Business School, the faculty member that I might just happen to sit next to at, at um, you know, when I have lunch, because we have an open uh, cafeteria that everyone goes into. Well, I haven't seen them because I've been in my office, I've been in my home and they've been at their home. So those weak ties can be really important because it could be just the thing that says, you know, I'm sitting with somebody and they say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm worried about this issue. And I say, well, hang on, I've been doing research on that. And, you know, there you go. It doesn't yeah. take many of those sort of sparks to really ignite a yeah. new way of thinking. And so what network scholars have been really worried about during the pandemic is the collapse of our networks into the huddles of people we're very familiar and happy with, but actually those wider networks, and I'll tell you why they're particularly important in a multi-stage life, is that, you know, a multi-stage life means that you transform yourself. You, be, you move from one thing to another. You know, you move, you sort of start your own business or you go away, you, you travel for three months or you um, really focus on a very high, high paid job, whatever that is, or you become a social entre entre entrepreneur or you do charity work. To do that, you need to see role models. And those role models are often in the per your periphery of your network. You know, you if you're not an entrepreneur yourself, you probably don't, probably none of your close friends are entrepreneurs. But you might have a friend of a friend who's an entrepreneur and you, met, you sit and talk to them and they say, well, have you thought about it? So these, this diverse group of networks is, is very important to help us transform ourselves to help us change they're the role models that inspire us to be something different and my worry is that as we move more and more to you know closing down those are the things that that start missing which is why i'm always interested in, in arab in one of the design companies because what they've done is they've acknowledged this and they've said when we design an, a building now we're going to try and design it so it sits in its whole whole neighborhood and a whole community so you know for example they were telling me that in their uh, place in melbourne their office in melbourne they've got neighborhoods come neighborhood community groups coming in and out all the time and that's the sort of weak ties that are going to be so important to give you a chance of what you could become ensuring that there are opportunities to to network that's positive for career progression as well not not just those you know, a lot of people are talking about those um, serendipitous moments, waterfall yeah. moments. You know, it, but but actually, it it could look link in perfectly with mentoring. You know, having a having the the you know a mentor that's perhaps not just in that immediate team, but a little bit yeah. wider that's signposting uh, employees. You know, high performing talent. Yeah, and absolutely, absolutely, Michael. And the other group, of course, is sponsors. We know that women. Women, women being mentored don't really move up the organization. To move up the organization, somebody has to sponsor you. They have to say, you know, Linda's really good. 
I know this job doesn't seem like the best one for her right now, but let's go for it. That's a sponsor. And those sponsors are usually weak ties. Uh, they're usually sort of friends of a friend or somebody you might have met. They're not in your in your close um, circle of, of, of friends because that's sort of too far too nepotistic. So um, what's also we're worried about is where the women are going to get the sort of sponsorship they need to move to move up an organization and get those great opportunities. Let me be the, the bad guy here on one moment in the book, Linda. That, that, that I think it, it may well have been Arab, I'm not quite sure, but there, there are so many great examples actually from, from different organisations like Fujitsu, BT, Standard Chartered Bank, Artemis will come on to, you mentioned Arab, um, but where some organisations are playing with proximity. Yeah. They're, they're moving like where people sit around and all that sort of stuff. Running my own workshops, when I do this, a lot of people really find that quite dis you know uncomfortable you yeah. know I guess reactions to to change can you sell this to to our listeners you know this idea of you know regularly rotating the seating plan so that actually you you do start to keep your, your network a little bit more alive than it could be well this is this is a this is um something that arab does so they they keep people in groups by the way that's probably important to remember that they, they keep them in teams okay. but they move the teams so for example you know if you're if your if your team happens to be proximate, perhaps you're an engineering team and it's and they are a um, you know a design team, then you know just naturally you bump into each other and they said, well, hang on, proximate being proximate is so valuable. Why are we making? Why are we just giving it to those two groups? So what they've been doing is to move them around so they get a chance as a group to sit next to other people. That's why. That's that's how they've really used being I, proximate. I heard a story that from, from a close friend that you could look on the system and highlight your cursor over the screen to see who's who's sitting where. So you can obviously pick where you sit in, in, yeah. in certain offices, and then yeah. your name pops up, and you might kind of think, "Well, I'm not sure if I want to sit next to them today." But I, I mean, it's it sounds good to me, and and I think if we can sell it, we can create some urgency yeah. and importance yeah. around that networking then great. Perhaps it's like a muscle. We'll get used to, to yeah. moving around. One company I really, really wanted to ask you about was Artemis. I think there's some there's some, some secret weapon, I think, that they've got there to, that is really uh, the gold standard of, of flexing to talent's need. High-performing talent, but actually they really need some, some flexibility. What was it that they did uh, that many of their competitors and counterparts failed to do, Linda? Well, let me just say a little bit about Artemis. Artemis is created by a woman called Christy Johnson, who actually comes to teach on my London business via Zoom, obviously, because she's based on the West Coast of America. And, and, the, and this is the story she tells, and I, I tell it in the book. She said, you know, I came out of Stanford and then she went to uh, McKinsey. So that was, you know, pretty high flying individual. But she realized that as she had she had twins who weren't very well when they were young and actually just thought, I, I can't do this. And then when she looked at the data, she found that lots of women like were like her. They they would love to work, but they just couldn't. And there was also people who, for example, would love to work in a high powered job, but just happened not to be you know, living in San Francisco, they were living out in, in the countryside. So she said to herself, could we build a company that's entirely virtual? We never meet each other. And that's what she did. 
And it's, I think, as you have, have as you have said, Michael, I learned a lot from Christian, and in fact, I still do. And, and this is what I learned. I learned that I learned the word word intentionality from Christy, by the way. I, I see that more and more people are using it, but it was actually Christy who was the first person who said to me, we have to be intentional about the design of work. And the second thing I learned is you have to move everything as much as possible from explicit. Uh, from tacit to explicit. Let me give you an example of that. People say, oh, I've got to be in the office because I, I have to look at what others are wearing. You know, I, I just need to know what the norm is. Well, just write it down. You know, why do people have to find that out? Why? And actually that, includes in, that increases inclusion because one of the challenges with building an inclusive workplace is that there are so many rules that you don't understand if you don't come from the dominant group. So she actually opened up a lot of those rules. Now, I have to say a word of warning. Um, it's a relatively small company and they do very high-end strategy work of a very analytical nature. So she tends to attract introverts rather than extroverts. Uh, they have quite a lengthy selection process just ready to work out. But, what, but one thing that I really found exciting about their work is that I said, well, what difference has it made to people? And she said, she said, what we've noticed is neighborhood ties are much stronger. And she gave me a list and I put it in the book of all the things that people do, you know, sitting on committees, sitting on governors, being in an orchestra, you know, helping disadvantaged kids, working at a, a, all the things that we'd love to do, but we don't have time. So that gave them time to do it. So it's a bit like the T Ford, uh, Michael. It's not going to be for everybody, you know, but... For somebody who wants that sort of job, it's absolutely perfect. And she's got a whole bunch of people who love working like that. And I think that's what we're going to see, just a lot more variety in terms of what the workplace is. Yeah. And to, to put it crudely as well, that there's billions of dollars on, on the table of talent yeah. on, on the table yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a very clear business case for that that flexibility that, that Artemis has just yeah. smashed out the park. One element, as we start to test and implement a, a redesigned workforce, uh, one word that leaps off the page is fairness. Yeah. A country mile. And, you know, it's like this, this thing that we've not talked about fully is actually colleagues that have got the option to work from home, working with colleagues that don't. Yeah. The colleagues that don't, that are still nine to five in the office, are looking on and, and saying in their heads, well, that's not fair. Yeah. What are the different types of fairness that we should be aware of? Thanks again for asking that question, Michael, because I just feel managers and there are this stuff that researchers do that managers really need to understand. Networks was one. The other was fairness. And you'll notice in the book I spend, I don't know, maybe six pages just describing what we know about fairness because it's so important. And this is what we know. We know that for you or I to, to decide whether something's fair, Part of it is about the outcome itself. You know, did you get paid more than I did? Full stop. The second is the process of fairness, which is to say, was the procedure fair? Could I understand why you got paid more? And then the third is interactional, which is to say, 
when my manager sat, sat down and talked to me about this, did I feel that as they were treating me in a fair and open way? Now, each of those are important, but interestingly, the one that's most related to feelings of fairness is the third one, interactional. So that's why um, I got very excited about managers. And that's why um, Diane Gerson, who has stepped, just stepped down from IBM and is now at Harvard, she and I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review, which came out this month, in March, we're talking March, uh, about you know, managers and basically saying, and I wrote it in the book as well, stop seeing managers as the frozen middle and see them as a huge resource to help you to get hybrid work. If your managers are not on side, it doesn't matter what the practice or process is. I have to say, Michael, one thing that slightly worried me last week, but I haven't really articulated it yet is that I ran um, a workshop for about 60 companies and we did polls you know I love polls and I asked them you know what are you really focusing on right now and it was I gave them quite a long list the thing that most of them were focusing on was they were building procedures you know this was an HR group so this is where they'd gone straight away I need to build a new policy actually really what we know from interactional fairness is it's that's not the important thing the important thing is how you build it and then how it's enacted by your managers so what diane and i have argued in the hbr article is we need to find we need to help and support managers to have those amazingly important one-to-one -one conversations which where people come out and say okay now i know what i'm supposed to be doing now i know what hybrid does it, it, it never ceases to amaze me that actually the role of the manager in an organisation isn't clear to everyone. Yeah. Uh, and actually, a, a lot of the areas with it, you know, that you discuss in the book, uh, the importance of coaching and, and building, building talent, we've talked about visibility, etc. Yeah. That it's somehow we keep reverting to the type of that's not valuable. The policy's value, value, you know, actually working hard's valuable. Presenteeum's valuable. Bombs on seats are valuable. Are we really at a window where we're going to stop coming back to that, those older, archaic ways of, of, of thinking? Yeah, we are. But as Diane and I said in the, in the article, and we also said in the book, is that's a completely different change of skills, power structures, um, uh, you know, capabilities, uh, assumptions. And so, you know, organizations have to support managers to make that, to make that transition. For example, from saying, you know, the performance of the team is all about me to saying the team's performance is about the whole team, saying I'm the most powerful person and I'm the one who controls whether you get the next career to, job to saying that's something that, I need to support and facilitate my team members. So these are things that are not going to, that will require, again, this word intentionality. And, and in, in the book, we give examples of companies where they've changed the naming of managers or they've built them a community around them so they can learn more from each other, or they've done some amazing training to support them, or they've used, in the case, for example, of IBM, great AI, understand, you know, not surprising, to get a lot of the stuff off their plate so they're not having to deal with, you know, all the bits about recruitment and selection, all of that's there for them. So it's a combination of things, but we have to let managers shine. That, that is definitely time for us, unfortunately. It could go on for a lot longer, Linda. Um, so the, good, Michael. We really good. 
Um, we, we joked before, didn't we, about um, Jim Collins, I think the, the, the conversation went lasting two and a half hours. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll never be there that long. We could have been, we could have been. Um, so the book Redesigning Work is due for release on the 17th of March and in the US, the 3rd of May. So our fellow Americans will have to- Yes, a little okay. bit I will be there. I will be in New York on the 3rd of May to help the little thing Fantastic. move into American society. And then it comes out in November in Japan. Oh, sounds great. Um, you can find more details on the book and uh, more about Linda on the podcast notes, of course. Linda, thank you so much for navigate the, the hybrid workplace, staying ahead of the curve on the topic and, and for taking thank time you, out Michael. from HSM Advisory in London Business School. Real absolute pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.